Welcome to Marketing Tales with Chris Raposo, a podcast created to spotlight and highlight marketers, tell their stories, and share their knowledge with those interested in all things marketing. If you're interested in more than just the cut and dry strategies and tactics and want to learn more about the human side of his guests and how they got to where they are today, then this show is for you. But you talked about the, you know, non-traditional students having to juggle multiple responsibilities like life, uh, work, studies. How can the marketing messages address these concerns of those non-traditional students? How can you bring that empathy knowing that you know that they're going through something? Yeah, I think that's super important to showcase how a program can be flexible, adaptable, and convenient so that you're positioning your program as something that's going to enhance their life, not make it more difficult. Whenever I think about um, marketing to non-traditional students, I think about a lot of times they're wanting to show their kids that they can persevere, show their kids that their parents are, you know, doing, making an achievement or, or doing something. They want to be a role model. And so if your marketing can kind of showcase that you're going to, when you graduate, your kid's going to be in the crowd holding up a congrats mom or congrats dad sign. Um, we, I used a picture of a guy wearing his cap and gown, holding his baby and just like smiling at his baby at graduation. Cause it's like, you're setting your family on a different trajectory when you get your degree and everybody's going to be so proud of you. So kind of mixing the two, the convenience, adaptability, along with that emotional tug of what it's going to mean for your family if you finish your degree, um, I think is is an important message for non-traditional students. Hello and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Marketing Tales show with Chris Raposo. Today I have the great honor to welcome Jamie Hunt to the show. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your show, Jamie. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well during the conversation. So Jamie, did a little bit of research on you on LinkedIn through your podcast as well found out that you've earned your undergraduate degree in journalism, and then you have a master's in integrated marketing communications, and you've worked in higher ed for about 20 years. When did you know you wanted to get into marketing and what do you love about it? Yeah, so I didn't know marketing was a profession when I was growing up. Um, And I wanted to actually be a biologist. And I took a journalism class, fell in love, did that for about four and a half years, and then realized that I was not gonna be able to pay my bills in a city as expensive as Minneapolis. So I got into public relations, which often happens with journalists. Um, But then when I was five days into my job at UW Oshkosh, and the person that was over marketing left and my boss asked me to fill in and it lasted the whole rest of the time I worked there, um, taking on that. And I actually fell in love with marketing because it mixed the two things. It mixed the art of writing and creating, but it also had that science, which is as a a biology major, you know, that part was really important to me. So once I could see that that's what marketing actually was, that it was this mix of art and science, I was all in on it and went and decided I needed to get my master's degree so that I could learn more of the theory behind marketing. And then the rest is history. That's awesome. Yeah, I went to journalism school as well, and I I earned my bachelor's in public relations, but then I fell into marketing 
as well, just because it is, it is a bit of a mix. I'm more on the social proof side and the collaboration and the mutual beneficial arrangement with uh, other companies or thought leaders like yourself. And so that's my driver. And that's why I like PR, but also mix it into my marketing strategy. So you are currently the VP of University Communications and the CMO at Old Dominion University, yeah. also the podcast host of the Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. Can you tell us a little bit about Old Dominion, the podcast, and you know what do you what do you do there? Yeah, so I've been at uh, ODU for about a year. Uh, I came here from Miami University, where I was also the VP and CMO. And then before that, I was at Winston-Salem State, where I was the VC and, and CMO. Um, I, t I joke that my job is much like the Ken meme. Ken's job is speech. My job is meeting. <laughs> I just go to a lot of meetings. The day-to-day -day life of, um, of an executive, I guess, is meetings. But um, I, here at ODU, I oversee everything related to brand strategy, marketing, public relations, news, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, same thing at the at the last two institutions. Um, as far as confessions of a higher ed CMO, that's sort of a passion project for me. I think that we, and there's a lot of professional development opportunities out there for people, right? Mm -hmm. Not a lot of stuff that's like truly on demand, stuff you can do while you're riding your bike or you're driving into work and stuff like that. So I was hoping to fill a niche for people where you can get content that is um, as helpful as a conference presentation, but you can listen to it on your own time um, and you don't have to like set aside the time to do it. And I think it's really been a hit. We just hit 15,000 downloads, which is we're really happy about um, and hope to continue to grow, um, you know, as the, as time goes by. Yeah. It is such a valuable podcast. I actually listened to one of the episodes. It was about almost an hour long while I was pressure washing my backyard uh, outside, just listening to the episode. It was so interesting. It was about the gentleman who unfortunately lost his, his job um, at one university when he was up for promotion. So it was super interesting to me. So I listened to the whole thing while pressure washing. Like you said, you can consume this stuff on the go and actually learn something while you're doing mundane things. Um, so with higher ed, there's something coming up that's pretty relevant right now called a demographic enrollment cliff. And if you're in the higher ed sphere industry, everybody talks about it. And I'm sure you talk about it as well on your campus. Can you give a brief introduction of what the demographic enrollment cliff is for the audience who may not know about it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so exciting to be talking about this when just yesterday I was going on a tour with the president and he was talking about the impact of the enrollment cliff um, with our faculty. Um, but the enrollment cliff refers to the fact that starting in about 2025, there will be a drop in the number of college age people in the United States. And that cliff sort of got created after the 2008 um, economic collapse. People just had fewer kids right after that. And so we have this sort of slump of college-age students. And so, and, and then in addition to that, there's also this idea that the slump that happened, it's also largely white um, young people. We're seeing continue, we'll continue to see the growth, particularly of Hispanic or Latinx um, in our country in that demographic, but um, the overall count is going down and the white uh, college graduates or college um, age students is also steeply going down. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about the, the enrollment cliff, it's the demographics um, 
are going to be drastically different. Um, and it's kind of already starting to impact us, to be honest. Yeah, I've seen the the reports over the last couple of years. There was a drop over time. If it was going down, going down slowly, slowly, slowly. But then there's going to be this cliff drop off coming up in around 2025. Um, on your campus, Old Dominion in Virginia, what have been some of the effects of the demographic enrollment cliff that your institution has already witnessed and anticipates in the near future? Yeah, so we've been really lucky to kind of be not in the situation that some schools that are in the Midwest or the Northeast are in. We're starting to feel it. Um, we're starting to see particularly white males kind of dropping off a little bit. Um, and that is a nationwide trend. Um, that I think there's like a million fewer men are going to college than you might anticipate. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see a bit of that. Um, we're also seeing a, a little bit of a gap in engagement from um, that population, white males. Um, they're not necessarily as engaged when they do come on campus as well. So that's kind of what we're starting to see. Um, what we don't want to have happen is if you look at some of the schools, particularly in the Midwest, um, Wright State, for an example, has lost like a 40% or something like that decrease in their student body over the last 12 years. And we don't want that same wave to be hitting us. Um, yeah. And so we're kind of doing some preparations around that. Okay. And with Old Dominion, since you're Virginia is still considered the South, and like you just mentioned, the Northeast and the Midwest are particularly affected by that enrollment cliff. Um, I saw through my research on the internet, and I know that you're not supposed to believe everything you read on the internet, that Old Dominion gets some students from Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Is that a fact? Do you get students from there as well and have have has the number of enrollees from those states been decreasing over time? Yeah, so we do get um, students from those three states. That's definitely um, among our top feeder states. I don't think we've seen much of a decline in those yet, but I think we're anticipating that that could be. And I yeah. think we have to look at um, what states export a lot of students. So we know um, certain states, and I don't want to say what they are because that's giving away my secrets, but that, that there's certain states where a large percentage of their um, high school graduates go on to college in a different state. Mm. And I will say that Maryland and New Jersey and Pennsylvania are among the states that that's the case. And I yeah. think that might be partially why states like Pennsylvania are really struggling with the demographic cliff because mm -hmm. they are, were already exporting students out of their state um, at a high rate. And now there's even fewer of those. Um, mm -hmm. But we have to adjust our admission strategy and be looking at states that are projecting an increase in um, uh, undergraduate aged students. Um, and then, of course, you know, looking at non-traditional students as well. Yeah. And Old Dominion, it's been around for almost 100 years. I looked it up, looked it up. It's, I think it was founded in 1930. Mm -hmm. And it, I'm, I, I lived in Florida for the last 17 years. And Old Dominion, when I read Old Dominion, there's some sort of a brand recognition there. I know about Old Dominion, even though I'm not in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I would have never gone to Old Dominion, but still, it, it may be because it's of because of sports, perhaps. Didn't know about it, but there is a brand around it as well, right? So maybe the 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 
the schools that have that that stronger brand may not struggle as much with the enrollment cliff compared to some unknown community college, perhaps that's up in the Northeast, North, North and uh, Midwest, you know, uh, uh, looking at that, maybe that's has also something to do with it. But I told you in the pre-interview, I'm a non-traditional student. I graduated at the age of 39. So that's particularly interesting to me to see just how that may affect or or, or tip the scale uh, for some schools in the Northeast or Midwest that, uh, that are struggling with the enrollment cliff. If there's a decline in traditional students, maybe the marketing strategy should pivot to non-traditional students. There are millions of students or adults out there that have some credential or no degree. It seems to be some ripe harvest for picking. You just have to adjust your overall strategy Given a change in demographics, how vital do you see the role of non-traditional students in stabilizing the ever-growing enrollment numbers or decreasing enrollment numbers? Yeah, you hit on exactly what I always say. We have so many adults in the world right now that started college and didn't finish, mm -hmm. and we just need to help them complete those degrees. And that's exactly what my husband did. He had started college, um, left college with like about a year left. Um, and I remember he was saying, well, when I'm done before, when we were talking about sending him back, he said, when I'm done, I'm going to be 35. And I was like, well, you're going to be 35 either way. You might as well be 35 with a degree. <laughs> um, and, and so he was like, yeah, cool. Good point. Um, and went back and finished. But I think that is such a right population. One, you're a lot more mature when you're older ideally um you know, ideally you're a lot more mature when you're older but you understand the value of money you understand what it's what you're investing in your education is important so you're probably more personally invested as well and then you have a better sense of who you are and what you want to be you know if I started out as a, a biology major let's say I continued on that path um and then dropped out for whatever reason you know coming back and knowing I want to work in marketing or PR would be very valuable to me um, but I'm talking with our admission office about how we can bring back the alumni of our institution who didn't graduate. Like, can we just start there? Do specific tailored outreach to those students that didn't finish. Yeah. Start with the ones that maybe just have a year left. Um, bring them back in. Make it easy. Make it flexible and convenient. Um, and, and help them finish and get that degree. Um, and that will stabilize the enrollment numbers, I think, um, at our institution. And, and the, the, the UW Oshkosh, which I mentioned before, had a program like that, and it was wildly successful. And that was back in the late um, aughts. That was, you know, 2008, 2009, um, that they started that program. So I okay. think there's still a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, this it was very, very wise of you to tell your husband that he is going to be 35 regardless. When I enrolled in community college, I was 29. And I knew I was working full time, so I knew it is, I would have to do it part time. So I did the calculation. It would take me eight, eight years. I had two kids in between, so I took some time off. Oh and I um, so it took me about nine years to get my undergraduate degree um, slowly. But like you said, you, we know the value of money. So I graduated debt free because I paid out of pocket. Every I, I took two courses. Every semester, basically, I just I just saved the money up. I paid for it right there because I just didn't want to have the student loan debt. Uh, yeah, a long long time to finish it, but um, you know, once I had the degree, I was like, hey, I don't have any debt, so yeah, it's, it's a yeah. lot of value to that. 100. And 
And my husband wouldn't have the career that he now has had if he hadn't gotten his degree. Yes. Yes. Same here. I was a paralegal last year and I made a career change upon graduation. And I would have not gotten the the job that I have now if I wouldn't have gotten the uh, PR degree. Right. So yeah, yeah. a lot of value to that. And there's an upward trajectory now. Back then I was stuck. I was a paralegal. Yeah. Next next step is attorney. I was I wasn't going to drop a hundred thousand dollars on law school. So <laughs> right. you know, so I had to find a different way. So here I here we are, graduated mm -hmm. adult learners. Uh, highly recommend it for anybody who's out there listening who may have a degree or a, some credentials, but no degree. It is time well spent and you'll reap the rewards once you finish. Absolutely. Like my, they opened up so many doors for my husband. Yes. Yes. Um, engagement channels. Let's talk about that. Um, I've talked a lot to higher ed marketers. It's part of my job with Hannon Hill that I work with. And I just have a lot of friends that are in the higher ed marketing um, industry and you know, the channels are usually, where does Gen Z hang out? Is it TikTok? Is it Instagram? Now, I if I wasn't in marketing, I would not have an Instagram account. So non-traditional students who are not in marketing that you want to target, they might not engage with those traditional marketing channels, such as Instagram. What outreach methods do you suggest uh, higher ed marketers should employ to reach that demographic? Yeah. If you're talking about non-traditional students, I think LinkedIn is a great place to start because that's more of a professional environment. Um, and I think you can find people there also who are looking for jobs, looking for opportunities, and you're putting opportunities in front of them to do something that might increase their chances of being able to get a job. Um, I, I think that there's still some value in Facebook. I think Gen X in particular is still spending time on Facebook, although we're getting old, so we might not be as interested in going back to school. I hate to say that, but, um, and then I think the the display ads, the, I actually do think there's value to billboards, um, people sitting in traffic commuting. Uh, we've used um, NPR, so doing those sponsorships on NPR, because you're speaking to people who might be looking to get further educated. That's a really good spot also for graduate programs, NPR is. Um, you know, looking for ways to outreach to people at, at uh, organizations that do reimbursement for tuition or who cover tuition. So if you have, if you know that there's a big headquarters for a company and they reimburse for tuition, you know, geofencing that employer and throwing some ads, um, I think is a good strategy. And then if you're looking for real specific things like nursing, degrees, like the, the sort of the professional degrees, marketing those in a physical way. So um, lounge, teach, nurses lounges, teachers lounges, things like that, where they're, maybe RNs are seeing advertisements for BSN, they can up credentials so that they can earn more money, um, have more choices for jobs. So it's, I think it's just thinking more about where they are. And a lot, but the good thing is, a lot of the people doing the marketing are in the demographic of the people they're marketing to. So you kind of, where do I go? Where would I be? Um, and start looking there for those folks. Yeah, that Facebook geofencing, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I love that when it just pops up right there, you know, and you're like, oh, this is beautiful. Right. But also when you're stuck in traffic coming home from a dead end job and you look at that billboard, it gives us sort of a glimmer of hope. Right. right. You know, you're like, oh, there's a better world out there. Maybe I should um, 
think about getting my degree. Now, I went to the University of Florida online. I lived in Tampa. Gainesville is about two hours away. <clears throat> I had a full-time job, two kids, one kid at the time. I wasn't going to drive or move to a small town in, in the middle of Florida, but the University of Florida online, they did a good job targeting me with um, direct mail pieces. Oh, yeah. Stickers, uh, not stickers, magnets that I put on my fridge that said the Gator Nation is everywhere. I still have this magnet to this day on my fridge. That's as awesome. So that's kind of how I got awareness of the University of Florida online, because in my mind, it was like I wouldn't I want living in Florida. It's either Florida State or it's University of Florida. But in Tampa, it's University of South Florida. But I didn't want to go there because I needed a flexibility as an adult learner. So when I got that option, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can get a degree from the University of Florida. While living in Tampa, this is gold. Plus, yeah. the tuition was less than an on-campus student, which was also relevant to me yeah. as a adult learner, you know, having a mortgage, having kids, having a wife, that sort of thing. So that's also something to to consider. <clears throat> for sure. For sure. I mean, when you think about the concerns of a non-traditional student, like you, like you said, kids, spouses, mm -hmm. lives you have to arrange around, jobs you have to arrange around. Most non-traditional students are not quitting their jobs and moving to go somewhere. So geographically, you're looking, if you're having on-ground programs, you're looking at people who are within a you know, 30 to 40 minute radius of you. But when you add online programs to the mix, suddenly the whole world is an option. And a lot of schools, I think, are getting pretty smart about keeping their out-of-state tuition fees, tuition fees lower so that it's not the sort of what if I lived in Virginia, I'd be paying half of this. Yes. But you know, maybe having out of state just be a little bit more than in state. Um, if you're able to do that based on your state's legislation legislation. But yeah, you're right. Online opens up so much more possibilities. So much. Yeah, you you made a good point with the out of state tuition now with the demographic enrollment cliff and the lack of traditional students, you may have to consider that if you want to attract somebody from the south coming to the north, right? Because yeah. the travel expenses, the moving expenses, something's something's got to give um, for those for those kids or or their parents. So if you maybe lower the um, out of state tuition a little bit, that would be relevant. Like me, I, I moved to Georgia after graduation, but I'm thinking about getting my master's, and I'm of course first choice would be going back to Florida online. But if if I have to pay three times as much as I did in the past, I'm like eh, I don't know if I want to do that. I may find something in Georgia now. Um, but you talked about the, you know, non-traditional students having to juggle multiple responsibilities like life, uh, work, studies. How can the marketing messages address this, these concerns of those non-traditional students? How can you bring that empathy knowing that you know that they're going through something? Yeah, I think that's super important to showcase how a program can be flexible, adaptable, and convenient so that you're positioning your program as something that's going to enhance their life, not make it more difficult. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that can make somebody's life more complex. Some of it is even elder care issues as well. And so it's kind of showcasing mm -hmm. whenever you can the success stories of your students and graduates who have pushed through challenges like that to earn a degree, and then showing that outcome. Whenever I think about um, marketing to non-traditional students, I think about a lot of times they're wanting to show their kids 
that they can persevere, show their kids that their parents are, you know, doing, making an achievement or, or doing something. They want to be a role model. And so if your marketing can kind of showcase that you're going to, when you graduate, your kid's going to be in the crowd holding up a congrats mom or congrats dad sign. Um, we, I used a picture of a guy wearing his cap and gown, holding his baby and just like, smiling at his baby at graduation because it's like you're setting your family on a different trajectory when you get your degree and everybody's going to be so proud of you so kind of mixing the two the convenience adaptability along with that emotional tug of what it's going to mean for your family if you finish your degree um i think is is an important message for non-traditional students oh it is such a driver like what you just mentioned that the family wanting to make the family proud when before I went to university, I talked to my wife and I said, we talked about our kids, our potential kids. And I said, yeah, of course, yeah, I want my kids to go to college. Yeah. And she was like, well, they're not going to go to college if you don't set a good example, if you don't go first. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, you're right. So so I went and my son, he was uh, three years old. He was actually in a stand as I walked the, walked the stage. So it was lovely. I It was such a good, good um memory i have pictures with him at graduation you know and it's just something to be proud of uh for sure and for you, sure you people will be proud of you you were proud of yourself you know yeah. as an original student finishing and there's so much value to it it's not just a people say oh it's just a piece of paper oh gosh so much more you get such confidence from that pushing through the perseverance you know if you see hey i can do this there's so much more i can do um Absolutely. My mom's biggest regret in life is that she didn't finish college. um, And that if you asked her to this day, you know, she's 73. If you asked her to this day, she would say that's still her biggest regret. And I didn't want that for my husband. I didn't want him to go the rest of his life regretting that he didn't finish. Um, And knowing that there's a path that lets you finish without having to completely uproot your whole life you know, made a huge difference for him in that choice. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I would have regretted it too, if I would have quit. And there were times I wanted to quit. I'm not, (laughs) you know, but you just have to push through. And then once you get to that finish line, you're like, we did it. Come on. We did it. Right. It's like family and everybody. So it's not just everybody. It's like your wife, your kids, they're all a support system there. So that's good. Um, now, non-traditional students, they may feel a bit awkward out of the mix if they go to campus and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm in front of all my peers, they're all young kids, I kind of feel weird. So how can institutions ensure that non-traditional students, specifically adult learners, feel included and in part of the institution when they may not be able to participate in some of the on-campus events often hosted during the day? What is something that you suggest schools should do that make them feel part of the community? Yeah. For fully online students, one of the things that we're doing is creating a digital campus that they can navigate with and like with hangout spots and, you know, that kind of thing so that you're, you still have a little bit of that socialization. I think too, having um, clubs and organizations for non-traditional students um, is really important. And almost every campus I've been on has a commuter student union and most non-traditional students are are commuters. And so, you know, here's a special lounge that you can hang out with that's just for um, commuter students. You get a lot of uh, non-traditional students hanging out there. Um, I think having your faculty be um, receptive to 
kind of taking non-traditional students under their wings sometimes. I know that helped my husband a lot. He had a professor who who just really was like encouraging him and helping him through the whole process. And he felt he's still in touch with that that person, you know, 13 years later. Um, you know, those kinds of things. From a marketing perspective, I think a lot of times our materials just showcase traditional age students and that can kind of take away from that sense of belonging that they might feel. So making sure that you're showcasing, profiling, highlighting non-traditional students too, I think that's really important from, from a marketer's perspective. Yeah, you made a good point there with your husband still being in touch with his professor. I, I did the same thing. I actually had one of my PR professor on this podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah, he agreed to it. I was like, it's so thrilled, you know, it's just, and that showcases, if you take advantage of that, I tagged the University of Florida online. They didn't engage with it. If I was the social media person at the University of Florida online, I see my graduate having a podcast with the professor of University of Florida online. I would be all over that, you yes. know, um, um, social proving this. It's like, oh my gosh, look, this non-traditional student, this professor, they're like this, and they're still working together after he graduated, you know, so that's yeah. uh, something you want to market uh, for sure and take advantage of that if, if something like that appears, because social, social proof is the best proof, right, in this aspect. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of institutions that are leaving engagement opportunities on the table when they don't um, respond, highlight, amplify, whatever the stuff that their alumni are doing, especially if you're being tagged. If you're being tagged by someone, they mm -hmm. want to engage with you. Mm -hmm. And now you're not having to be like, hey, you know, can I share your video? I found, I stumbled on it. But if you've been tagged, that's yeah. sort of like an implicit Im approval to share the content with that audience and, and to make that commentary. Um, I think that that's definitely a missed opportunity there. Yes, I think so too. My uh, one of my classmates that I stayed in touch with, she just um, wrote an article for one of her local newspapers, and she was her article was featured on the front page, and she published it on LinkedIn. So I commented on on her on her post, and I again I tagged the University of Florida online and said, "Hey, you know, kind of like, hey, look what's happening here. Yeah, you know, this is your chance to showcase." what comes out of your institution and, you know, what others could do if they go to your institution, that sort of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, as we bring the episode to a close, you, like I said earlier, you've been in marketing for about 20 years. What is one important lesson that you have learned over the course of your marketing career that you can share with the audience? I would say the most important lesson that I would have to share is that relationships are everything. Mm. So that's, both relationships with people within your organization. I think that's the most important thing you can do is actually build the relationships so that if somebody has a challenge, a concern or whatever, they're picking up and having a conversation with you that is just natural, it's not awkward. And vice versa, if you need something from someone, you can just pick up and call and ask versus you know, some sort of politics thing. Um, but then also on the other side of that, relationships with your audience. Mm. understanding your audience, understanding that social media is a two-way conversation, not just a broadcast tool, that you're working to build community. And that's actually in our mission statement for our department, we talk about our mission is to advance the reputation and perception of the institution and to elevate that, but it's also to create a sense of shared community among our students, faculty, staff, alumni, and parents. 
because we want people to feel like they're connected to the university, that they have a relationship with the university. So to me, it's all about relationships, both you know, in the work, out of the work, with the work, with the people you're working with, with the people you're communicating to, just always be thinking about the relationship that you're building with your marketing. Yeah, 100%. Those relationships matter. It's something uh, my our mutual friend, Troy Singer from the Higher Ed Marketer told me once when I had him on the interview as well. Relationships matter. And like you said, social media is a two-way conversation. So what I always do is I if I comment on somebody's post, and they don't engage with me or, or they don't like it or respond. I'm like, okay, maybe they're busy. But if I do it again and they do the same thing, and I'm like, they either too busy or they don't care, right? Yeah. And I'm always like, I think they don't care. Maybe because I don't have a big enough following. So I'm kind of like, okay, I'll stop engaging with this institution or with this brand or with this person. You know, yeah. I move on to somebody else and no longer waste my time uh, there. So that's also something to keep in mind. People that take the time to comment on your and engage with your posts, they're active and they expect uh, you to be active and reciprocate that activity. Absolutely. And it's important to me, you know, I, I trace this job that I'm in today back to making an intentional decision in 2017 to have a very active social media presence because what happened from that was I tweeted something that had a editor say, can you write a piece about that? So I wrote a, an article about it and that article somebody read and said, um, can you come speak at my conference? So I came and spoke at that conference. And then when the president here was looking for somebody, he started to ask around and somebody who'd seen my work before was like, you need to call her. All of that's because I was very intentional. I'm going to be engaging on social media. If somebody messages me, I'm going to answer. Mm. I don't always answer if they're trying to sell something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like... Can we have a relationship before you try to sell me on LinkedIn or whatever? But, you know, I answer people, I engage on people's posts, and it's because I'm naturally interested in people, but that comes through and ultimately led me to where I sit today in this fantastic job. You're doing a very good job with that because you always respond to my questions and my comments on LinkedIn. I, I really appreciate that if somebody that's on a specialist level getting that uh, conversation going with that with a CMO. It is such a divide there, but still you're not big enough to not talk to me. So that's something I really appreciate about you. Yeah. And I, makes- I mean, it's the relationships thing. Relationships are what I'm all about. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I want to have really, I, I have this like sort of also like disorder in my brain that I, like once I've engaged with somebody twice, now they're my friend. Like you're just, we're friends now. <laughs> that's where we're at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I really appreciate that as well. So you're a great leader. Great leaders are readers. What are two books you recommend anybody should read, whether it's about life or whether it's about marketing? So about one of my favorite books about marketing is The Brand Gap by Marty Neumeyer. I have a copy here. Fantastic book um, about marketing, not super long, or about branding, not super long, but a great book. Um, I also really like if I'm moving outside of higher ed, um, Radical Candor and the Culture Code are great books for leaders. Awesome, awesome reads. And then I have to make a plug for my friend Terry Flannery, um, who wrote How to Market a University. It's a fantastic book. You can see my <laughs> yes. tabs all over it, but it's a fantastic book if you're interested in higher ed marketing. She just really lays it out well. 
um, and does a great job with it. So those are my favorite. I'll also throw one more in, um, Spent by Jeffrey Miller. It's about um, consumer decision-making and why people make decisions. Um, absolutely a fascinating book. Uh, I wrote a paper about it in my master's, um, as part of my master's, and it's just how, why we make decisions and how that ties back to how we're wired. Uh, that was way more than two books, but that I read a, a lot. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's something that, that, that plays into the psyche as well and helps you with your strategy on how to message. Um, yep, yep. Relevant. So thanks so much for being part of the show, Jamie. How can people get in touch with you to either learn more about you, Old Dominion, or your podcast, Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO? Yeah, so you can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Jamie Hunt IMC, J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. I'm also on LinkedIn under Jamie Hunt. Um, please feel free to connect with me there. Um, and if you want to find out more about Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the easiest way is to go to my website, thehigheredcmo.com. And um, click on the podcast tab, and that will take you to our most recent episodes. And you can see all the episodes. I'm really, really proud of the podcast. I think um, I think it's it's grown and it's great, and I love it. So please check that out. As you should be. It's a great podcast, and I have a feeling it's going to end up on the ten must listen to podcast on the Hen and Hill blog again this year. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Okay, Jamie. Well, thank you so much for being part of the show. I really appreciate the insights you shared with the audience and with me. So great job. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Take care.